0: Amen. Kids, you are not dismissed yet. Hang tight. Let me give you a very quick history lesson from Neighborhood Bible Church. Twelve years ago, we opened our doors uh, as a brand new church and um, just a celebration that God had done something here at this building, this location for a long time, but God was doing something brand new. And uh, very, very early on, it was evident by our neighbors that there were very many Spanish speakers in our midst. Uh, The very first time I heard John Muir do a graduation ceremony, it was bilingual, and the two languages were, you guessed it, English and Spanish. And so I began to pray along with the elders. We, We began to pray as a leadership team. My personal prayer was this, that God would supernaturally gift me with Spanish, or that he would bring along the right teammate to help me minister to people. For you see, I can sound very authentic for about two sentences in Spanish. And, uh, and then after that, it gets really, really awful. And so we would have many people come, and they would check out the church, they would appreciate the kindness of people here, but they couldn't keep up with the language. It was just too challenging to, to do that. Um, about eight years or so into the journey, um, God brought a couple of gentlemen to our attention, and we actually did a few outreach events. You may have remembered Connie and Sean Keller. They have since moved away, uh, but they introduced me to these two guys, and uh, one of them is named Angel, and I want to bring Angel and Sandra up right now. Would you give it up for Angel and Sandra? Um, so I didn't know it at the time, but when I met, when I met these two, God was introducing me to, to some really, really dear friends. And you don't know that when you first get to know someone, um, but they began to be some ministry partners in the work that's going on here, and for the last, how many years has it been? We don't keep stats like this very often. We just follow God in love, and then time passes. How long has it been? Like uh, three and a half years. Three and a half yeah. years that officially we've had our third service. And, uh, and this couple gets paid in heavenly dollars. Uh, when Angel does terrible, I cut his pay in half. When he does exceptionally well, I double or even triple his pay. And, and somehow we always meet our budget at the end of the year. I don't know how it works. But all that to say, in all sincerity, um, this couple, like many others, I wish we could just recognize it, but God recognizes it, God sees it. But this couple gives in really extraordinary ways. Um, and God's been blessing that. God's been really doing some very favorable things. Um, Angel came on um, in this role through prayer. Really, we just began to pray, and God opened the door and provided Angel to us. Um, and, and very quickly after that, probably a year or so into it, Angel began, as we would meet, Angel kept saying, Dave, um, he said, I need my Ben, I need a teammate, I need someone else in this ministry to work. And so we began to pray, and really through a process over the last year and a half, there have been a couple of others that he has sought to raise up from within the ministry, and for a variety of reasons, it hasn't worked out. Praise God, they're still with the ministry, they're still serving, but they weren't the right fit. Um, and this last September, just prior to me going on um, on our sabbatical, um, he he reintroduced me to the other guy that, that I had met years and years ago named Andres. And so Andres and his wife, Claudia, would you come on up here right now? Um, we are introducing today that, that Andres um, is coming on and has agreed to an offer uh, to be our third full-time employee at Neighborhood Bible Church. So would you welcome Andres and his wife Claudia. So Angel, Angel gave up his signing bonus to make this happen, but, but Andres has really been functioning in this role uh, since September um, in, in, in a variety of ways, but he's, he's coming on in a, in a very full-time position. And so... We're we're overjoyed at this. In fact, here I am talking and I didn't show pictures worth a thousand words. Um this is something that happened Friday night. This was a, a women's event uh that, that went on and these things go on all the time, but all the more now there's there's a there's a breadth to the ministry and Andres has been a huge help in um in bridging the the gap between languages and cultures that can sometimes be present. Um so people ask, what is our church about? What is God doing at our church? And on the front page of our website, it says a giant storyline God is writing here. It says this, it says um, three services, two languages, one church. God is building one church uh, despite the fact that there are language challenges, cultural challenges, generational challenges, all kinds of things. We think it brings great glory to God uh, that we work through those and we don't just divide over those. Um, so I want to ask, um, Jim and Ben, uh, Rob, to come on up. Uh, we're going to lay hands on on, uh, on Andres and Claudia, his wife, um, and uh, and you'll be getting to see them and, and know them. One of the things that we do periodically is I go speak in the third service periodically. We've brought Angel in here. We'll continue to, to, um, to, to do that. So I'm going to grab the mic here. Jim, would you just lead us in prayer? Thanks, brother. It's on.
1: Hmm. Father, I just thank you how you call us. You call us into a relationship with you to proclaim your glory to the world. Um, you call us to, to um, just to fellowship with you, and I thank you how you structure your church, that you pull it together. This is nothing that we could dream about. Um, this is all you, Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit that goes before us to prepare a path for us that you called us to walk in, and I, do, I thank you for Angel and Sandra, and, and I thank you for Andres and and his wife, as they are called here to help this church out. And I just pray they'd be filled with the knowledge of your will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that they would walk in a manner worthy of you, uh, bearing fruit which you prepared for them to walk in. And, and not that we have to struggle to walk into it, but you call us to abide in you, Jesus. Um, we look forward to many years of serving you and, and reaching out to the community and, and bringing Jesus, bringing your kingdom, Lord, um, here on earth. Uh, just to look forward to what's going to come in eternity. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Thanks, you guys.
0: <clears throat> uh, kids, you are now dismissed. You can you can go off to class. Um, just so you can hear really clearly structurally, too, we, um, we don't really think a lot about titles kind of within NBC, but it's really helpful for visitors. It's helpful for people to know how structures work. Um, Andres is coming on as a neighborhood Bible church associate pastor. So his title is associate pastor. Um, it's quite clear, uh, he's bilingual, it's quite clear that he's going to give a lot of attention and energy toward our third service and all things Spanish, but already he's made an impact uh, just kind of across the church. So it's really an NBC, NBC position, not a third service position. Uh, with that, uh, for those of you keeping track of such things, if you have a business card of Ben's, um, it used to say associate pastor of family and youth. Um, and we are just scratching that second part as well. Ben is uh, is just an associate pastor as well. Sort of this speaks to the fact that we all wear a lot of hats. In a smaller church, you don't really specialize in, in one area or another. And so, um, yeah, that's how that works. Luke chapter 5 is where you should open up to. And uh, you will notice, uh, some of you will notice, that in the first half of the church, there is a mattress sitting in the front of the church. Um, that is not in case I get tired or, or pass out. Uh, Jonathan suggested that we take communion by reclining at table and laying down. That's not what's happening. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a visual picture for something we're gonna look at in the scriptures today. And I had the choice of a mattress or some leprosy spores. And I thought it's safer and more wise to bring a mattress than to bring in actual leprosy. So as we get into the text, you'll, you'll see what I am talking about. You know, people are uh, always asking, Jameson, I'm going to need some help. This is not translated to what's behind me, and I'll be looking behind me the whole time, and people will think I'm paranoid. Um, People are always asking this question, who was Jesus? They're still asking it. Uh, There's lots of ideas and assertions and speculations and writings on the subject. Think about the name Jesus for a second. The name of Jesus is held in highest esteem. Poets and singers through the ages and around the world have and continue to create stirring art to ascribe glory due to the name of Jesus. But it's not just the artistic community. Thinkers and intellectuals write books and papers and hold seminars to discuss the merits of Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus' name is used as a swear word. You think about it. People slam their finger with a hammer and they don't exclaim Hitler or Pol Pot or Mugabe. They don't slam their, their, their finger and shout out Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Buddha, or Confucius. What comes pouring out of, their name, out of their mouth as a curse word is the name of our Lord and Savior. Ever wonder at that? It's held in highest esteem, and it's used as a swear word. You probably have heard it this last week or so. Why all the accolades, and why all the hate? Who was this Jesus? Now, some of you in the room want to reframe the question. I know I do, and by doing so, I actually tip my hand of whose team I'm on. I wouldn't say, who was Jesus? I would say, who is Jesus? Jesus. You see, unlike anyone else in history, he's not trapped in the past. He's not stuck in the history books. Jesus is alive and active and powerful and present. I know this because I know him. The passage in Luke today that we're going to look at presents a really relevant question. Jesus, who do you think you are? And here's the powerful thing. We're going to hear directly from Jesus as to who he was. He's going to get to speak for himself. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the good doctor. We've used this as sort of an overarching series title for the Gospel of Luke. You can see barely on the screen, but built into the word good, are the three letters boldened a little bit more God. You see, Jesus is claiming to be God, not just good. His holiness is such that it cures the sin that stains us. And the rub that I don't want you to miss this morning is this. Jesus is not just skilled or knowledgeable or compassionate or kind or wise. He is claiming to be and follows up with proofs that he is God, the unique son sent to earth. Maybe you've been bothered by the thing that bothers the people in the text today. People find this A giant rub. I'll grant you that Jesus is a good moral teacher. I'll grant you that he did some good in Palestine. There's enough historical evidence that secular scholars abound in total agreement that, yeah, he's a real person that really lived. It's very, very well documented. But don't go beyond that. That's where the rub comes. Don't make him out to be something more than what he is. This is the same rub, by the way. It was religious Leadership in the text today and the regular joes that get really fired up about jesus making more of it than than he is And the same is true today the thinkers and steerers of what we're supposed to think Get really upset when you take jesus and move him and elevate him above any other religious leader We'll grant that he's good. We'll grant that he had some good sayings and some good teachings But don't make him out christian to be more than what he actually is Here's what I want you to notice The one who presses the point is Jesus himself. It's Jesus who makes makes himself more than just a good moral teacher. Some of you don't have to imagine this, but imagine that you are going to see a doctor. How is it that you're supposed to trust her? How do you know that this doctor should be followed with, with the prescriptions that she may offer? You want some kind of proof, some kind of credentials. You've probably seen in the news this week a giant scandal, especially around this area, uh, and here's the shocking thing. Wealthy and influential people have been using their money and influence to get their kids into college. <gasps> what a shock that wealthy and influential people are using their privilege not to wait in line like the rest of us common folk. I don't know why this is so shocking, actually. <laughs> I think this is just the way the world works. This, is, this has always been how the world has worked. But it has come out really prominent here because guess what? We have a lot of money in this valley. We have a lot of influence in this valley. And what happened, for those of you who may have not been following along, is that there's been some controversy around uh, college entrance special treatment. And here's what I want to point out. Much has been made of the, the focus on the injustice of paying their way into college. But here's the question I have. If they were able to pay their way in with millions in donations and asking the admissions board to look the other way because they actually fabricated uh, sports events and, and resumes that were that were fake... And with just enough donations toward their new gymnasium or whatever it might be, the admissions board would look the other way. If they're willing to pay their way into college, wouldn't they be able to pay their way to a degree that wasn't exactly earned but rather bought? So here's the shocking thing. Your doctor in a few years or your doctor from graduating several years ago maybe is qualified to practice medicine with their degree on their wall as a pop singer is, to give you moral advice or voting advice. I doubt anyone in this room went to their doctor, said, can I just borrow your degree for a second? I have a way of testing the authenticity of documents, and I want to research the actual documents. Just by show of hands. Anyone ever do that? So think about this for a second. What, what's a big hang-up for a lot of people about Jesus? I want proof. What are his credentials? How do I know? A Christian would say this, there, are, there is more documented evidence, a substantial amount more than, than many, many others. We won't take time to, to kind of delve into that. But most of us take on authority that scholars who are putting their careers on the line aren't lying about this, and there's such a variety of scholars, and it's stood up to the the critique of ancient documentation that we say there's enough uh, significant evidence that says that that what we're reading is in in its truest form. And much like someone trusting themselves to a doctor, they may have other testimonies, to go off of people's testimonies shockingly you may have pictured your doctor by a yelp review right you don't know these people who is john a like you don't know who that person really is could be the doctor himself saying great things about him so we go to a doctor and we don't know if their college entrance was scammed and faked we don't know if they bought their way to their position of where they are, but doesn't enough stuff happen in the world that that's quite possible? Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying blindly follow your doctor. I'm saying check it out. But here's what I'm also saying. Don't think that you can't get over the hurdle of, I've never seen the original document, so I couldn't possibly trust that person. Baloney. I think you take medicine at the prescribed um, action of a doctor based on faith. It's not blind faith, but those gaps in knowledge, you have faith to follow the doctor's orders. There are many conflicting voices saying this way to happiness, this way to the cure. It ranges from how to deal with depression, how to deal with heartburn, how to deal with back pain, how to deal with that tumor, and on and on and on. And we look to voices saying, what am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to follow? Each one requires faith. So let's turn our attention to Jesus, the good doctor who came to seek and save the lost, but also to do this, to shed light on the bigger picture of our pain. Some of you are bummed to know about different kinds of doctors. You're bummed because that means you had to deal with that kind of doctor. You learn new terms when you're sick. You learn learn new terms when your loved ones come down with things. You all of a sudden understand the idea behind terminology and procedures that you didn't know before, and ignorance was bliss because you didn't have to deal with it. So what kind of doctor was Jesus? Look at chapter 4 of Luke, verse 40. The kind of doctor Jesus is, is he's unlike any other. You can't really fit him into a specialist ologist category he's the kind of doctor that's never stumped it says this now when the sun was setting all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them he's the kind of doctor that gets immediate results with the spoken word and the touch of his hand remember that Luke is a doctor Luke takes special notice of this. He understands this is supernatural. He's showing us this. No doctor knows that much about everything. But it gets even more. He's not limited to one area of expertise, nor to one realm of reality. Look what it goes on to say. The physical was no match for his power in word and touch, but also spiritual, emotional, and today we'll see mental were no match. 41, and demons also came out of many. Jesus has command of your cells, the healthy ones and the sick ones. Jesus has commands of the spirits. Peter asked this question, Who is this that even the waves and the wind obey him? Luke might ask this, what kind of doctor correctly diagnoses the problem and doles out the cure immediately with a word and a touch? Let's look at our passage today. Chapter 5, verse 12 says this. I want to show you the second and third in a succession of three miracles. The last one Ben covered last week where there's the miraculous catch of fish for Peter. Verse 12 says this, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy Now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. What do we know about leprosy? Kind of open discussion. What what comes to mind when you think of leprosy? Probably most of what you know centers around the fact that you're a Christian and you read the Bible. Leprosy. What do do we know about it? Fire away. You don't need to be a doctor. Abby. Abby. It still exists in where? Okay. Thank you. I did not know that. I know it still exists. Uh, What else? It's contagious. Yeah. Anything else come to mind? Body parts falling off. off. What? You You have to be quarantined. Right. It's isolating. Anything else? Okay, we just had an EMT talking to us. Say that, a, say that in plain English. Right. So it's a it's a numbing it's a numbing thing. You don't you don't feel it. Uh, fascinating book, by the way. I think I own it in physical copy. You're welcome to borrow it. By Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey, called "The Gift of Pain." And Philip Yancey went uh, to a, a leper colony, I think in India somewhere, somewhere overseas. Um, and it's a pretty fascinating discovery of some things that they learned. Dr. Paul Brand was huge in in, in helping uh, leprosy pace patients, but a really interesting read. So, so, so here are some things that we're hearing. It's contagious, right? It's it's isolating. You actually lose um, feeling. It left you unclean and unable to participate in the community. If you go back to the Old Testament, you read some very specific things around various kinds of skin diseases and what was supposed to be done about it. What we know of a leprosy patient is this. It's both physically anguishing, but also emotionally and relationally painful because of the fact that you are um, unclean. You're actually required to announce your uncleanness when you're in a public place. Just think about that for a second. Think about the fact that you have to announce your wretched condition to people. Your sin enters the room before you do. What would it be like to, um, to, to have this, this go on? Their shame and loneliness go before them. There was no cure. There was no real hope. There was no real home that went on. And perhaps most painfully, there was no physical touch. People would not touch you. Not only did it make you ritually unclean, but it was contagious. So they avoided you like the plague. And yet we see Jesus stretch out his hand and what? Touch this man. What a gift. Think, think with me for a moment about the leper. Imagine a life where the whole community avoids you at all costs. I mean, what would that do to your psyche? What would that do to your sense of self? Day after day, week after week, year after year, you are on the outside looking in to the community, to the joy, to relationship, to physical touch. How isolating that would be. Here's what we see in the leper. There's no shame. He falls on his face and begs. He cries out. You only do this if you have no hope. If you feel like this this is a shame-honor culture, that, that is still the Middle East. You do not do this unless this is your last hope. And yet, so there's no shame, but on the on the same token, I think there is shame. Here's what's really curious about this. He doesn't doubt Jesus' ability. he He doubts his willingness. He asks, are you willing? Now, we don't know this. We can't grab onto this. But when you really get your head around a person who when small children are walking by, mothers and fathers pull their kids away. Don't get near that person. You wonder if the willingness was sort of born as sort of a fruit of his shame. One of the deadly things about chronic, ongoing illness is it eats away at your identity. You become the sick person. That's who you think you are. And so it's as if this this man is saying, "I, I, I know you can do this, but am I worth it? Are you willing to clean me? Are you willing to use your power on even me? Let's turn our attention to the good doctor. Just the sight of Jesus causes a huge reaction in this man. We've already mentioned touch and words and immediate healing. There's a holiness that comes with Jesus that exposes our sin. Remember Peter's reaction from last week? Jesus makes this miraculous display of fish. and What does Peter say? Sweet, do it again. no. He says, get away from me, Jesus. Unless you wonder what that's all about, he clarifies it. He says, for I'm a sinful man. In the presence of holiness, we're ashamed of our sin. We see our guilt. In the presence of light, we see just how dirty and filthy we are. This is why Peter said, get away from me, for I'm a sinful man. But here's the beauty of Jesus. The holiness of Jesus doesn't just expose our sin, it deals with it. That's the good news. Jesus is capable and willing to clean this man up. There's a great reversal that goes on in this story. Contagious disease would say that the sickness should infect Jesus, when in fact what happened was this. Jesus' holiness... Evidently, is contagious. He touches the man, thereby what? Making himself unclean, right? The fact that Jesus touched him, he immediately became ritually, ceremonially unclean. And physically, he now should have the disease. Instead, what happens? He gives life and restoration and cleanliness to the man. And it's immediate. Jesus is the light of the world that came into the world. It's the nature of light and dark that light drives out the dark and not the other way around. This is an incredible picture of Jesus' power over evil, Jesus' power over sickness, light's power over the darkness. Then Jesus gives him this command He tells him to go and do something, to obey. He says to make the offering and to show yourself to the priest. Why did Jesus do that? Well, first of all, Jesus didn't come to nullify the law. He came to fulfill it. So he's he's keeping in line with what was commanded. The result he knew would be this. It would restore this man to fellowship in the worshiping community. He's working through the authority of the priest. But here's what I want you to catch. The law and the priest could not then... And cannot today make anyone clean. The law and the priest can declare who is clean and who is not clean, but they have no power to make clean. Atonement is necessary. So we're about to celebrate communion and think all the more on the cross. What a beautiful teaser toward the cross that this is. Jesus possesses the remedy. It's not found in the law or religious leaders. Jesus was willing. He comes with this dead man walking, becomes unclean through physical touch, only to infect the man with new life and cleanliness. By his sin sickness, we are healed. So that's the second miracle. We had Peter, we have this. Now let's look at the third miracle that's talked about here in verse 17. It says, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed, a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way in, no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst of, before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins... Are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. You know, some of you know this, but there's nothing like trouble to find out who your friends are. You know who gets a really bad rap because of their bad theology in the bible is job's friends But you know what job's friends have going for them. They show up They come to job He's in utter misery. He's a pitiful wreck and they show up And that's the first step of being friends Just be there just show up don't raise your hands But how many of you thought I don't i'm not going to call this person because I don't know what to say I'm not going to go into the hospital because hospitals creep me out. I'm not going to enter into that relational mess because I'm not really sure what the right thing is. So it keeps us from that. First step of friendship is to just show up. This paralytic man had the gift of some really good friends. We don't really do this at Neighborhood Bible Church, but if we had community group of the year, this crew would win. We'd say, man, you guys, you guys take the cake. You guys ratcheted it up a whole big notch. Here's the scene. Uh, They're going to plan a trip to Jesus because it seems like he's a really great guy and does really great things. And they're foiled by the crowds. And after trying this way and that way, instead of giving up, there's banter that goes on probably and then someone has this little germ of an idea that says, what if? And then it just leads to one of my favorite encounters in all of scripture with Jesus. Last summer at a concert in England, there was a disabled area and a guy named Michael Rogers, who's 30 years old, uh, became paralyzed in a motocross accident. He was one of 15 people in this disabled area and the only one in a wheelchair. He says this, I couldn't see, so I ended up just listening to the concert. My mates, that's what they call friends in England, I think, my mates had the idea of lifting me up. Suddenly there were 20 lads all helping out. Everyone was loving it. Liam Gallagher, the one whose concert they were at, tweeted this. Respect to the lads at my concert for giving Michael Reynolds the best view in the house. Biblical behavior. Now, I don't know how much of a biblical scholar Liam is. I'm not sure if he was thinking of this passage or just kind of selflessly thinking of other people before themselves. But isn't this a phenomenal parallel to what we're reading in the scriptures today? There's this really great thing going on. There's too many people to see. And so they turn uh, the person who can't see into a crowd surfer so that he can become part of it. Here's my question for you. Don't we all want friends like this around us? I mean, if we could handpick the kind of people around us, this is who we want to be. But here's the the bigger question. Don't we want to be these kinds of friends? We want to be that friend that says, no, 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 no. We're not coming back tomorrow. We're not going to be out here. We're going to get to Jesus. We're going to figure out a way. What if we go on the roof? (laughs) This will be great. And so it comes together. So there's the friends. Look at Jesus. Think about this for a second. There's a mattress sitting here. I'm not sure really the size or comfort level uh, or technology embedded in you know, I don't know if this guy had a sleep number right on his mattress like like we do today, but there are four handles on this mattress uh, for easy carrying. And, and if you imagine, uh, I have put some thoughts today together. I knew we would be gathering. I put some things together, and if if all of a sudden there was things falling on my head from above, right? Um, this is interesting. It probably took some time, so you know maybe maybe there was a stepping out of the way, and and it took a little while to kind of lower down. I don't know who the first guy was to poke his head in. Hey, But think of all the ways Jesus could have responded. We just take this for granted, but Jesus could have been a little annoyed. He could have been super distracted. Uh, Jesus could have been angry. Jesus could have broken out because of their presumption and saying, you know, destroy not your neighbor's roof lest yours be torn asunder. I mean, you know, he could have done all kinds of things. What we see is this. Jesus sees their faith. It's like Jesus gives them a public medal for their faith because he affirms their actions in two very pronounced ways. I love that it's their faith. All three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this event. And every one of them say the same thing. That Jesus sees their faith. Not his faith, but this community that has come and say, if we can just get to Jesus. One of my favorite seasons of life was being a middle school pastor. I say this all the time that middle schoolers, you know, you have a child show up sometimes, you have an adult show up sometimes, and sometimes you have no one show up. That's that's middle school. That can all be in the same conversation. But there's a childlike faith that's talked about in the scripture, and I think this is it. Jesus commends, in fact, he says it's a requirement that we become like children, or else we're not getting into the kingdom of God. Notice that he doesn't say to be childish. It's easy to be childish, and Jesus actually rebukes people who are being childish. But childlike faith, he commends. Here's what I think childlike faith is, at least in part. It's unpretentious. It's unsophisticated. These guys just have this notion. We have to get this person with an audience with Jesus. We haven't really been invited, so we'll just make ourselves invited. We're going to get our friend there because he needs healing. You know, the smarter people among us are clamoring to serve in children's ministry more than their fair share each month. Because they understand this basic truth. I have something to learn from these nearest neighbors of ours in our midst called children. I have something to learn by just rubbing shoulders with them, by watching them, by kind of getting in their head and why they do certain things and the things that they say I'm going to really, really listen to. They understand that Jesus said it's a requirement that we become like children to enter the kingdom of God. There's a cleansing that goes on being around children. You know, kids don't get hung up on the details. Kids don't bother with big fancy requests. They make a mess. They break stuff. And they think nothing of bothering you with their problems. And all the parents of toddlers in the room said, amen. God loves this. So do parents. We end up loving their simple trust. We see their heart in this. And we go, you know what? We can fix the roof later. Can you believe it? They tore the roof off. That's gonna, that's gonna be a weird insurance claim, but we'll deal with all that later. And I just love this that they're, that they're here. And Jesus just sees so unlike us. Do you notice that he doesn't peg the guy as a paralytic? You know who does that? The biblical authors who put this together. Look at your Bible. Most of you say, most of your heading on this section of scripture says that Jesus heals the paralytic man or something to that effect. You know who doesn't see it that way? Jesus. What does Jesus see? He sees a soul. No mention of his legs. He's not even talking about that. He sees their faith. Jesus goes after the biggest and most prominent need. Forgiveness. What's the big looming problem? It's the wrath of God. And if you compare the wrath of God with the fact that you won't be able to walk for a few short years while on this earth, it's it's not even a contest. So Jesus goes after the biggest need in this man's life. Man, your sins are forgiven. Now we can be in relationship. Now we can be in fellowship. Oh, yeah, yeah, that whole walking thing. Let's throw that in too. And so he heals that. It seems like almost an afterthought though. And this is absolutely inverted from how we think. What's the person's biggest need? That he'd be able to walk. It affects every single day of his life. Jesus says, there's something far bigger going on. There's a much bigger story I'm writing. There's a much bigger need that you have. And I'm here to take care of it. How about the scribes and Pharisees in the story? These are the keepers of the law. They're a little bit like the religious gotcha squad. There's people all the way even from Jerusalem at this point because word has begun to spread. They're sitting in on the teaching, and they throw a penalty flag when he says that he's going to forgive sins. And if you think about it, their logic is really sound. What do they say? They say, only God can forgive sins. Now, if I were to borrow Ben's car, Ben just got a new car, Ben and Laura, and uh, we must be paying him well. It's a Maserati, a little sports car, and Ben swears he's not going through a midlife crisis, but... uh, but I, I beg to differ. No, it's 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 actually not. But imagine I borrow Ben's brand new car. And I know Ben, he would let me do this. I go off and I take it and I get it in a wreck. And I come back and I come to, to Micah and Gabe. And it just so happens I have um, yogurt land with me. And I say, hey, buddy, I'm really sorry. Um, I busted your parents' car. Would you forgive me? By the way, here's a nice piled high thing of yogurt land. And Micah, being the gracious guy that he is, he says, all is forgiven. I say, so we're square, right? He goes, yes, we're good. That wouldn't fly with Ben and Laura. Now, what if, what if I came to Ben and Laura and I said, guys, um, I wrecked your car. It's bad. It's really bad. Um, but you'll be happy to know. I, I know I've done wrong. You'll be happy to know that I've learned to forgive myself in this situation. Ben would give me one of those giant hugs and we'd all be good. No, that's not true. The the justice prophets in the room are going, no, no, change the story. Why? Because the only one who can give forgiveness is the one who's been offended. The only one who can clear the debt is the one who has been wronged. Every sin we ever commit, hear this, is first and foremost against our Creator. God is the lawgiver, And so every law that's broken is first and foremost against God. David understood this in the Old Testament when he sins with Bathsheba. He says, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. And you're thinking, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah, her husband? Like, there's other people, David. But what he saw was this. First and foremost, when my eyes that were created to see needs in people and respond in kind, to capture beauty and marvel at it and tell of it, when I take those eyes and I use them for lust... I'm sinning against the one who made my eyes. This mouth of mine that's created to call out praise of God and offer words of encouragement and instruction and guidance when I take those and I use it to gossip against a fellow image bearer. I am sinning against God. So the scribes and Pharisees are dead on in saying the only one who can forgive sins is God alone. You know who presses the point? He answers them is Jesus. He doesn't back down from this. He answers it. And look at the text. He answers their thoughts on this. Not their verbal accusations. He's answering what they were perceiving in their hearts. How trippy is that? I have no idea what some of you are thinking. I can guess. I have no thought. But what if all of a sudden one of you was thinking something and I said, oh, actually, James, you're wrong. And I start to answer what James is thinking about right now. I think that would capture the attention of the room if not the person involved in that. Let me close with these thoughts. Uh, Each of these three miracles... Peter, the leprosy guy and the man who was paralyzed, has this immediate impressive display that would have kind of wowed people who were present. But there is a greater miracle yet to come. There was a greater miracle that was coming. Think about Peter. He was shown this large miraculous catch of fish. But what was the impact of Jesus calling him to be a disciple who would be equipped to fish for men. If all it was was a catch of fish, we wouldn't be talking much about Peter. I've, I've mentioned him. He was in my notes. I've mentioned him a couple times today. World changer. How about the guy with leprosy? He was cl- cleansed of his contagious disease, but his cleansing went deeper. Now he was actually contagious with his joy. Not being able to keep his trap shut about what went on. I've been restored to fellowship. I'm welcomed in. I got a hug for the first time in I don't know how long. Verse 15 says, yet the news about him spread all the more so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. And how about the guy who was paralyzed? Can you imagine that guy? That guy in his little town, he's famous for the day that he kind of crowd surfed just like Michael Reynolds did. But you know what really happened on that day? He was actually famous with the angels as they celebrate. A lost, unforgiven sinner is now a member of the kingdom of God through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Something way bigger was going on than what happened in that synagogue. Here's the picture for us, friends. God is writing a bigger story than you and I can possibly imagine. Do we have eyes of faith to see these hurdles and these hardships and these pains that go on every single day to see the bigger picture? Some of you can testify God's a good author. He knows what he's doing. You've seen enough chapters of your life go by. You've watched the chapters in other people's lives to say, God, I don't know what you're doing mid-chapter, but you're a good and capable author. Let me invite the band to come on up. Let me show you one more thing that each recipient in each of these stories is also a participant jesus requires something from these people not because he needs their help but because he wants their heart what does he do with peter he makes him get involved flip the net on the other side all right that's kind of ludicrous but if you say so i'll do it he didn't need the net somewhere else he wanted peter to participate How about the guy with leprosy? After getting healed, he says, go and show yourself. Go and offer a sacrifice. Go and obey. Complete the healing by living the life of a disciple, which is when I tell you to go do something, even if you don't understand it, go and do it. And the paralyzed guy, here's what he says. Get up. Pick up your mattress. Go put it on free cycle. Get rid of it. You don't need it anymore. And go home. Get out of here. He gives But he calls us to participate in this new life with God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your interactions with people. Thank you for the wide variety of people that you meet, come across. And God, each one is so personal, so individual. We recognize and celebrate that these were actual accounts of actual individuals. And yet, God, as we get to peek in we see the character of who you are. We can see the cross foreshadowed in this interaction with the leper. God, we can look on the paralyzed man and see that all sin, seen or unseen, is crippling to us. God, help us to not keep our trap shut about the freedom that you've given to us, that you've offered to us. For those who have not tasted of this, God, would you make it plain to them? Would you just speak to them directly in their spirit? I am able and willing to make you clean. Come to me. I am willing to meet your biggest need, the thing you're not even praying about or asking for. I am willing to go there. Enter into your truest need see your truest self and gift you forgiveness. If that has not happened with you and you're sitting in this room, Jesus calls us to a point of decision where we lay down our shame and we say, you're our only hope. And even if we come bawling to the cross, even if we fumble weird words of a prayer, we don't even care. We've come childlike in simple trust and faith, saying, Jesus, you're our only hope. If that's you today, I invite you to simply receive the forgiveness. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, and you will be forgiven. Saved In just a moment, we're going to take communion. If that's you, I would welcome you to take your first communion as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as a person who was dead and is now alive, who is on the outside of the community and has been welcomed into the family of God by the blood of Jesus. And for those of us who've been Christians many, many times, celebrated and commemorated the Lord's death through the Lord's Supper, many, many times, may it not grow weary... May it not grow cold to us.